Beyond the Walls podcast is a production of Mad Lab Studios. You can find us on Twitter at walls underscore beyond. You can search for us on Instagram and Facebook by entering Beyond the Walls. You can also contact us at beyondthewallspodcast at gmail.com. We're excited to announce newly added podcasts to our Mad Lab Studios family. Sons of Liberty podcast, hosted by Michael Gullihue, is a podcast that looks at the highs, lows, and in-betweens of the American Revolutionary War. Beyond the Pyramids podcast is hosted by Aaron Baldwin, and that's a podcast that looks at history from gatherers to builders, from explorers to conquerors, and beyond. And My Heart, His Words podcast, hosted by Tammy Nashawn. This is a podcast that pushes pause on life long enough to focus on a moment and capture the beauty in it. We'd like to ask that you do a couple things for us if you like what we do here at Beyond the Walls. First, tell your friends and family about the show and give us a rate and review wherever you listen to our podcast. The show is available anywhere you can find an RSS feed, and that includes the Apple Podcast app for Apple devices, Stitcher and CastBox for Androids. We're also available on iHeartRadio and Spotify. Basically, we're just a search engine click away. This is the second part of our series on the Gilding of America. If you haven't listened to the first episode in this series, and you'd like to follow along in a chronological fashion to the story, I encourage you to go back and listen to part one now. If you've already listened, or you don't mind picking up right in the middle, then welcome to episode two, Reconstructing and Reframing a Nation. The format for this series of episodes will be an informational narrative. Allow me to take just a moment to explain that. We, in these episodes, will present you with a lot of information about how the American government attempted to handle issues that faced them at the conclusion of the Civil War. We'll be looking at laws that were passed, discussions that took place in both back rooms and on the Congress floor. And we'll look at information about how the economic and industrial booms impacted the time period, as well as how social reform and Western expansion continued to be a theme long after the 1860s. There are, however, a couple problems with sharing information only. Number one, when it's just informational, it feels like a lecture. And let's be honest, who really actually enjoys or even voluntarily listens to lectures in their free time? And number two, information only tends to dehumanize the people who lived, sacrificed, and even died within the framework of our story. It would be, in my opinion, a huge disservice if we didn't take time and tell you at least some of the human interest stories that mark this time, even if we can only go slightly below the surface of their stories. In this particular episode, we're going to be looking at two areas of focus that the nation faced during the Gilded Era. First, Reconstruction, and secondly, Reframing. For the Reconstruction, that effort began in the South. How would the government, both state and federal, approach the reconstruction of the portion of the nation that had seceded from the Union prior to the beginning of the Civil War? Secondly, how would they view the reframing of the territory that was America? How was the West really won? What are some of the myths that history has perpetuated about the expansion into the land that lies west of the Mississippi River? 
Let's first look at the Reconstruction efforts in the South after the conclusion of the American Civil War. It is said that history is the study of surprises, and maybe this concept is no more evident than in the story of Joseph Rainey. Born into slavery, Rainey was the first African American to serve in the U.S. House of Representatives. He was also the first African American to preside over the House, and he was the longest-serving African American elected official during the tumultuous Reconstruction period. While Rainey's representation, like that of the other 21 black representatives of the era, was symbolic, but he also demonstrated the political nuance of a seasoned, substantive representative. He balanced his defense of Southern black civil rights by extending amnesty to the defeated Confederates. He was quoted by saying, I tell you that the Negro will never rest until he gets his rights. We ask for civil rights because we know it's proper, not because we want to deprive any other class of rights and immunities they enjoy, but because they are granted to us by the law of the land. Joseph Rainey was born on June 21, 1832, to Grace and Edward L. Rainey of Georgetown, South Carolina, a seaside town consisting mainly of rice plantations. Rainey's father was a barber, and his master permitted him to work independently if he shared some of his profits, which was required by law. Rainey used his earnings to buy his family's freedom in the early 1840s, and in 1846 the family moved to Charleston, South Carolina, where Edward became a barber at the exclusive Mills House Hotel. As giving official instruction to black children was illegal, Joseph Rainey received a limited education, and his father taught him the barber's trade. In 1859, Joseph Rainey traveled to Philadelphia, where he met and married his wife, Susan. Rainey continued to work there as a barber, and the couple had three children, Joseph II, Herbert, and Olivia. The Confederate Army called Rainey to service when the Civil War broke out in 1861. At first, he dug trenches to fortify the outskirts of the city of Charleston. Later in the war, he worked as a cook and a steward aboard a blockade runner, which was a Confederate ship charged with carrying tradable goods through the Union Navy's blockade of the South. In 1862, he and his wife escaped to Bermuda. The self-governed British colony had abolished slavery in 1834 and proved to be a hospitable home for the Rainies, who took advantage of the thriving economy and its growing population. The Rainies lived in St. George and Hamilton, Bermuda, where Joseph set up a successful barber shop and Susan opened a dress store. The Rainies were able to keep themselves informed about the progress of the American Civil War by inquiring of passing sailors, and, after the Union victory, they returned home to Charleston in 1866. The wealth Rainey had acquired in Bermuda elevated his status in the community, and he became looked upon as a leader, and he soon became active in the Republican Party. In 1867, Rainey returned to Georgetown, South Carolina, and became the Republican County Chairman. When a state constitutional convention was called in 1868, Rainey traveled to Charleston to represent Georgetown. Joseph Rainey was elected to his first public office in 1870 when he won a seat in the state Senate, where he immediately became chairman of the Finance Committee. In February of 1870, Representative Benjamin F. Whitmore resigned his northeastern South Carolina seat, 
having been charged with selling appointments to U.S. military academies. The Republican Party nominated Rainey for the remainder of Whitmore's term in the 41st Congress and for a full term in the 42nd Congress. On October 19, 1870, Rainey won the full term, topping Democrat C.W. Dudley by a substantial 63% majority. On November 8th, he defeated Dudley once again, garnering more than 86% of the vote in a special election to fill the seat for the remainder of the 41st Congress. Rainey was sworn in on December 12, 1870 as the first African American to serve in the U.S. House of Representatives. One month later, he was joined by the second black member, Representative Jefferson Long of Georgia. Rainey's moderate politics were met with approval by both African-American and white voters, and he was elected without opposition to the 43rd Congress. Rainey advocated for his constituents, both black and white. He used his growing political clout to influence the South Carolina state legislator to retain the customs duty on rice, which was the chief export of the district and the state. He also submitted a petition to improve Charleston Harbor, and fought against an appropriations cut for Fort Sumter in South Carolina. However, Rainey's committee appointments and policies reflected his desire to defend black civil rights and his loyalty to the Republican Party. Rainey received seats on three standing committees, the Freedmen Affairs, the Indian Affairs, and Invalid Pensions. He also served on several select committees, including the Select Committee on the Centennial Celebration and the proposed National Census of 1875, as well as the Committee of the Freedmen's Bank. However, it was Rainey's work on the Committee on the Freedmen's Affairs that was created in 1865 to handle all legislation concerning newly freed slaves that earned him the most recognition of his political career. On April 1, 1871, he delivered his first major speech, arguing for the use of federal troops to protect Southern blacks from recently organized organizations like the Ku Klux Klan. Rainey also advocated radical Republican Senator Charles Sumner's Civil Rights Bill of 1875, which outlawed racial discrimination on juries in schools, transportation, and in public accommodations. After an easy re-election in 1872, Rainey's subsequent campaigns were made vulnerable by the growing threat to the congressional reconstruction in the South. In 1874, Rainey faced independent Republican Samuel Lee, another African-American and a former Speaker of the State House of Representatives, in a dangerous and close campaign. Rainey won the election, taking 14,362 votes to Lee's 13,563 but Lee demanded that the House Committee on Elections void some of Rainey's votes due to a spelling error in Rainey's name on some ballots. The committee upheld Rainey's election, with the whole House concurring in May of 1876. That same year, Rainey defeated Democrat John S. Richardson for a seat in the 45th Congress, again winning a tight campaign with 52% of the vote, 18,180, to Richardson's 16,661. We'll come back to Rainey's story later on in this episode, but now let's look at some of the political movements of the time. The main story of this time period is based primarily around four questions, two that were asked before the war 
and two that came after the war. Let's start by looking at the two questions leading into the war. Number one, what is the fate of slavery? And number two, do states have the right to secede from the Union? While the Civil War provided clear and decisive answers to these questions, it also exposed two major dilemmas that the nation would wrestle with for decades to come. In the first part of our series, we talked about the unforeseen consequences of war, and the questions that dominoed from the Civil War serve as evidence of these unforeseen consequences or unforeseen questions, and they were, number one, what is the status of the former southern states? And how will they be reintegrated into the Union? And secondly, what is the status of former slaves? They're no longer property, but what is the level of freedom and the level of citizenship that they have? For the next 12 years, these questions would dominate discussions amongst political and people groups. To examine the range of possibilities and to look at the answers to these questions, Let's look at the groups that were the loudest in proposing solutions and what their platforms were in regards to these two questions. First, you have a group of moderates. Their stance was to readmit the southern states quickly and on fairly lenient terms. Overall, this group just seemed to want to move past the Civil War as quickly as they possibly could. And in doing so, they didn't voice much of an opinion in regard to the slavery status as many of the moderates just wanted them to be assimilated naturally and quickly into the society. The next group were the radical Republicans. They wanted a very slow readmission of the southern states in the Union. They felt that the South needed to earn their way back into the Union, and they wanted southern property to be broken up and given to the slaves who had been freed. They believed former slaves should be granted full citizenship, along with all rights, immediately. The next group were the conservatives. They wanted rapid readmission of the southern states back into the Union, and they wanted free slaves to be granted freedom only, no citizenship, and no rights to go along with their freedom. And the last group that we'll spend some time with here is the four million freed slaves. Many of these men and women made the most of their liberty in a couple different ways. First, they enjoyed freedom of movement for the first time in their lives. And this meant that for many of them, they would travel just to simply get away from the place where they were enslaved. Many others traveled in search of family, friend, and loved ones who had either been sold in the slave trade or who had run away from where they were. Along with their freedom of movement, they also enjoyed their freedom by the opportunity of acquiring land. Nearly 40,000 freedmen acquired 40-acre plots of land in the West from the U.S. Army program that was overseen by General Sherman, known as 40 Acres and a Mule. Others went on to further their education. At the end of the Civil War, fewer than 10% of former slaves were literate. Helping to aid them in this cause to become educated was the Freedmen's Bureau. The best way to describe the Freedmen's Bureau in our time and in our terminology that I think would be the easiest for us to understand would be for you to picture the Red Cross. Their organization was somewhat similar to that of the Red Cross, but they focused on the South during Reconstruction, and in particular, they focused on Southern slaves who had just been granted their freedom. One of their main objectives was to help establish schools in the South for the recently freed individuals. 
Within five years of the end of the Civil War, there was an estimated 3,000 schools with 150,000 students in the South. Within 10 years, literacy rates of the freed slaves went from 10% to 30%. Now let's take a few moments and look at some of the political reconstruction that happened from 1865 to 1872. After President Lincoln was assassinated in 1865, he was replaced by his then-Vice President, Andrew Johnson. Johnson was a yeoman farmer from East Tennessee, and he was the only Southern senator not to resign from Congress when secession came before the war broke out. He was chosen by Lincoln as his running mate for his second term in 1864, mainly because Lincoln believed him to be the symbol of the Southerners who had remained loyal to the Union. After Lincoln's assassination and after the Civil War ended, Johnson indicated that he would like to take a hardline stance against the Confederacy readmittance. He then went on to surprise everyone by announcing a fairly lenient Reconstruction plan that would begin immediately and would proceed rapidly. Johnson's qualifications for reinstatement to the Union for the Southern states were as follows. Number one, they needed to repudiate their secession. And number two, each state needed to ratify the 13th Amendment, which abolished slavery. He also stated that Southern people who pledged allegiance to the Union could have all of their rights and property immediately restored. However, he did require some wealthy landowners and powerful political figures in the South to write him a personal letter asking for reinstatement. What seems to be the most convenient part of all of this was that Congress wasn't even in session the summer that Johnson announced all of his Reconstruction plans. And by December 1865, all Confederate states were in the process of being readmitted with the exception of Texas. And at the end of the year, Johnson had declared Reconstruction in the South to be complete. His radical and sudden change in philosophy as far as the readmittance of the southern states only adds fuel to conspiracy theories as to his involvement or amount of involvement in the assassination of President Lincoln. Now we'll come back to the South here in a little bit and look at some of the political and social fallout as the result of the Reconstruction efforts being quote-unquote complete here in just a moment. But now let's take a look at Western expansion after the war. How could Teddy Roosevelt, a New Yorker, educated at Harvard University, seem to be the picturesque ideological symbol of the Wild West? Well, I believe there was a couple things that aided to this imagery. Number one, he did spend time as a rancher in North Dakota in the 1880s where he owned the ranch. And from all accounts, he actually worked alongside day by day with his ranch hands in the operations. Number two, he did write an award-winning novel, the winning of the West. So, there is at least some, while not a lot, but some basis, in fact, to his persona. Also, he was known for his many picture opportunities during his political career on horseback, dressed as a cowboy. And even political cartoonists pictured him as a cowboy in the newspapers. But I think the question has to be asked, why did he want this persona? Well, I believe it was because it held, and still to this day holds, a glorified and even mythical place in most of our imaginations. There were, and are still to this day, myths about the Wild West that aren't necessarily correct that I would like to take a moment just to introduce five myths in that time period. 
The first myth is that the West was a completely separate place. This view has the Mississippi River as a boundary of civilization versus savagery. But the fact is the Transatlantic Railway and the Telegraph Network tied the nation from both East Coast to West Coast. The economic activity in the West was tied closely to the East and vice versa. That being in a result of the amount of grain and cattle being produced in the West was too much for the amount of people that were in the West to consume it all. And that was also true with the amount of goods such as gold, silver, beef, and etc. Myth number two is that the West was a place solely for rugged individualism. Now, considering how tough life was in the 1800s, there were no doubt rugged individuals to be found in the West. But the myth is, is that was all that's what made up the West, was this rugged individual. This myth being busted is aided by two major laws that were passed by Congress in 1862. The first being the Pacific Railway Act, which served to connect not only the people, but also the economies of the East and West. And number two was the Homestead Act, which divided millions of acres into 160-acre plots that were free for anyone who would like them. Or you could pay a small nominal fee if you were in a hurry to get your hands on your land. Needless to say, this drew millions of settlers from the West. So what about the trouble with hostile Indians that we hear and read so much about? Well, the government stepped in and provided tens of thousands of soldiers to remove the natives from these lands and place them on reservations. Now, on a side note here, I do find it a bit interesting and more than just a little bit ironic that this is in the same time frame that's marked as being a time for our nation that would go to war for the rights of slaves, and rightfully so. But then we seem to totally contradict ourselves so badly and so unashamedly by dehumanizing the Native Americans in the western portion of the continent by forcing them out of their lands onto reservations, and giving away the land. So I believe there is no doubt that the West was indeed made up of a rugged folk, rugged individuals, no doubt, but it was not all about individualism. Myth number three is that westward expansion was like a rolling of a carpet moving from the Mississippi River and then ending on the West Coast which in fact, in 1849, a gold rush happened on the West Coast in San Francisco, and that area was quickly settled by migrants, which meant that the plains in the interior of America were settled at a later date than what the West Coast was. Myth number four is that the West was a simple place of almost a bare-bones sustenance. Along with the flood of migration, with the westward expansion and the giving away of lands also came the modern world with modern tools. And with them came food and clothing and all types of things that the West had not seen before. These migrants came for more than just a meager existence. They came for personal industry. Many settled in growing cities, and by 1890, the West was the second most urbanized area in the U.S., trailing only the Northeast. Myth number five is that conflict between the natives and settlers were inevitable. I take us back to the first episode when we talked about nothing in history being inevitable until it had already happened. There were indeed many battles fought between the two, and that is definitely, most definitely, how the story ended. But it's not necessarily how the story began. 
the groups initially saw each other as great trading partners and groups that could no doubt help to make each other's lives better. Now that we've taken a brief look westward, let's go back and see how the South is faring at the end of 1865 with its completed reconstruction, according to President Johnson. As we'd stated previously, at the end of 1865, there were only two steps in order for re-entry to be gained back into the Union for the southern states. Number one, repudiate the secession and ratify the 13th Amendment of the Constitution abolishing slavery. The reality of what was happening was that many of these states did not ratify the 13th Amendment. They would simply begin the process to show that progress was being made and then either drop it or offer great resistance to it. Another hurdle was that many of the former political leaders were voted back into position in state government after readmission. And this lenient stance toward readmission into the Union led to civil and economic equality laws either being met with extreme resistance or simply not being implemented at all. Tension was so high during this time of completed Reconstruction that many in both the North and the South were convinced that the Civil War had solved nothing and that a follow-up war seemed to be the only answer. When Congress came back in session, they quickly struck back at the president's shady readmission tactics by taking swift and decisive actions, such as they would not admit newly elected representatives from the South. They also passed the Civil Rights Act of 1866, which said that anyone born in the U.S. was considered a citizen. And interestingly enough, in 1866, the Civil Rights Act was the first ever definition of what it was to be a citizen in the United States and to also give detail of the rights that a citizen had. Both bills were quickly vetoed by President Johnson, but with the opposing parties having control of the Congress, they were quickly overturned and became law. On June 13, 1866, Congress passed the 14th Amendment to the Constitution solidifying the Civil Rights Act. With this amendment, freedoms and rights became a national issue, not a state issue. The 14th Amendment took away power from the presidential office and gave it to Congress as the determining factor and definer of civil liberties. It was at this time that President Johnson took an unprecedented action for a president to do at this time, and it was a result of the 14th Amendment he traveled the nation to campaign against it, and ultimately his efforts failed. This move by Johnson enraged Congress, and they made a power play to put Reconstruction back in their hands solely. In March 1867, Congress passed the first Reconstruction Act, which divided the South into five military districts, in which each district had an appointed governor. Congress then established much harsher terms for re-entry of the southern states. Number one, they must ratify both the 13th and the 14th Amendment before being considered for readmission. Number two, they established voting rights for African Americans. This meant that 700,000 African Americans, and interestingly enough, 627,000 white Americans who had previously not registered to vote were now able to do so. These new terms for reentry sent the states into a frenzy in rewriting their state constitution. As a result, by the end of 1868, seven former southern states had officially and legally been readmitted into the Union. 
Southern states soon began to redefine and focus their tax laws, increasing the tax laws on the rich and lowering on the poverty-level citizens in order to rebuild the infrastructure of the South that was destroyed during the Civil War. It was during this time that the 15th Amendment to the Constitution was passed, which basically stated the rights of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude. And the power play within our government was far from over. And I hope that you didn't think that was just a modern-day thing. From 1870 to 1872, Congress passed many force acts, which gave the federal government permission to go into the South and squelch any riots that would rise up in response to the new civil and economic rights. By 1872, incredible progress had been made, and it seemed that Reconstruction efforts had reached completion. But history never stops. It only hits the pause button. And that's what we'll do here as well with the South, as we will find out later what happened after this. But now, let's check in and see what's happening in the West. Little was known about the unknown territory that was the West, and that began to change in the 1840s as detailed maps and guidebooks led to the Great Western Migration. The most famous of all the trials westward was the Oregon Trail, which began in Independence, Missouri, and ended in Oregon City, Oregon. And for those playing along, you just died of dysentery. If you played the computer game back in the day. So, what were the ideas that spurred this Western Migration on? Well, first, let's look at a term that was first penned by John O'Sullivan in 1845, and that's manifest destiny. He wrote, quote, It is our manifest destiny to overspread into possess the whole of the continent which providence has given us for the development of the great experiment of liberty. End quote. Notice the use of the word providence in his statement, which indicated that God was the one who meant for this to happen. In this time, national pride soared as people felt that they were aiding in a great nation-building enterprise by participating in the Western migration. But if you look below the surface level of the national pride, you can look and see that the opportunity of economy was probably and most likely the motivating factor. Simply put, it was about money. It was also about the draw of owning your own land. For free, if you can remember the Homestead Act we talked about, and this was one of the things that many people could not and would not pass up. But if we're fighting the perceptions that we still have from westward expansion, we have to fight against the concept that not everyone wanted to go and be farmers. There were many opportunities to make a living in developing cities. The best example of this would be in 1853, when Levi Strauss of the Levi Strauss Jean Company prospered in the dry good business in the San Francisco Gold Rush, and he never panned for a single ounce of gold. So let's take a look at the main components of the Western economy. First, we'll begin with farming. With the boom of industrialization, many people think that the agricultural party somehow suffered. Well, this is not what happened at all. From 1860 to 1900, farms went from 2 million to 5.7 million. And with this increase, so increased the profits from 7 billion to 17 billion. And naturally, it stands to reason that the industrial boom, which drew millions of people to these towns in the East, 
would need a supplier to feed the people, and that supplier was the West. Agriculture and industry experienced parallel booms. But I do feel like we need to make sure that we're being realistic with what Western life looked like. It was not easy by any stretch of the imagination. The elements, the weather, the bugs that's brought about by the weather, the way that the crops are affected by all of this, and the fluctuation, all of these made up an equation that made life very difficult in regards to farming. The second part, the second part of the Western economy was mining. We've already talked about the 1849 San Francisco Gold Rush that was followed soon by the Colorado Gold Rush of 1859 and also the Nevada Silver Strike as well, also known as the Comstock Lode. When gold was struck, independent miners would come along and be the first people to grab the low-hanging fruit, such as nuggets laying in riverbeds or pieces of gold that could be easily excavated. Once these were exhausted... Bigger corporations would move in with greater technology, and their operations came and did the extensive digging during the gold rush. Ergo, industry had begun to settle in the West. The third component of the Western economy was ranching. When Texas entered the Union in 1845, it entered with millions of longhorn cattle, which were not native to the area, but were brought into the region by the Spanish. At the point of their entry into the Union, cattle were mainly used for their skins. But as the beef intake increased in America, so did the demand, and so did the profit. What you would pay $4 for in Texas became what you would pay $40 for on the East Coast. The problem was finding a way to get it from Texas to the East Coast to enjoy these profits. So in 1866, we see the first ever long cattle drive undertaken by Texas ranchers in order to achieve this. And they went over a thousand miles from Texas to Colorado with thousands of head of cattle. Not too long after this, Abilene, Kansas soon emerged as another destination for these long cattle drives. During the 1870s, more than 700,000 cattle per year arrived in Abilene and went to Chicago to be processed and distributed to the east. It was during these cattle drives that the American cowboy, Roosevelt's favorite persona, was introduced onto the public scene. One of the biggest challenges of Western migration was that hundreds of thousands of Native Americans already lived in lands that they considered to be theirs. In 1865, 360,000 Native Americans were broken up into over 500 distinct tribes that lived in the Trans-Mississippi West, many of them with their own languages, customs, and traditions. And even though we mentioned previously that Native Americans and settlers had better relations at the beginning than what history projects, it was still very complicated and very tenacious. When millions of settlers migrated into their lands, it made it even more so tenacious than what it already was. For the past 250 years, natives were either being killed or driven further westward as a result of European settlers and their westward migration. In 1851, Congress passed legislation to aid the natives in the development of the Indian territories, which included areas of Oklahoma and the Great Northern Plains, which were made up of the states of North and South Dakota, Wyoming, Montana, and Nebraska. In these legislations, the government agreed not to allow settling of whites in the area and also stipulated that the natives agree to safe passage through their lands along the Oregon Trail. 
but the peace that was detailed in these pieces of legislation never materialized. At the center of this conflict was a mindset of superiority that the whites had over the natives. They considered natives as savages with no right nor the intellectual capacity to have claims to land. This mindset was best described in an essay written in 1867 by William Blackmore who said, quote, All authorities who have investigated the subject are unanimous in predicting that the red man are a doomed race. The Indians will surely disappear before the progress of the more energetic and aggressive Anglo-Saxons, as sure as the snows of winter melt away before the summer sun. End quote. His statement drips with the ideal of superiority, and he also conveyed the idea of the eventual victory of the white man as being depicted as natural. It did seem, however, that some honestly wanted to find a way for the groups to exist peacefully, but the attitudes and language of the peace treaties had almost zero effect on the migrants moving into the West and how they handled themselves on a day-in and day-out basis. Treaties were simply never given a second thought by most settlers. This was especially true in the areas where gold and silver was found. The Nez Perce tribe is a good example of this concept. They lived in the areas in Washington, Oregon, Idaho, and Montana. And in 1855, they signed an agreement with the government that stated whites were to never settle in their territory. But in 1860, gold was found on their land and settlers flooded in in mass. The only steps that the government took in this situation was to come in in 1863 and negotiate a new deal which dramatically reduced the land size of the Native Americans. And while negotiating these deals, the majority group leaders of the natives would not sign the new deal. So the government went and found leaders and representatives of lesser tribes who were willing to sign with the promise of compensation or favors. Unfortunately, this became the standard operating procedure from this point in working deals with the natives. This, as it would come as no surprise, just only served to stoke the fire of conflict between the Native Americans and the settlers. Unfortunately, although the natives fought valiantly and bravely, in the end, they ultimately lost for what I can count as being a couple reasons. Number one, disunity. The natives were made up of warring tribes without strong central leaders. Contrary to popular belief, they did not have exactly the chief image that we know of today as the strong central leader of each tribe. Sitting Bull and his exploits at the Battle of Little Bighorn, which we'll get into here in a little bit, were the exception to the rule amongst Native American tribes in the West. Number two, they fought with the whole tribe within close proximity to the battle. U.S. troops quickly realized this as an advantage and would raid entire villages and take families, both women and children, captive or slaughter them as a result of the close proximity. They also cut off the food supply, most notably by the wholesale slaughtering of the American buffalo, which was critical to the natives' day-to-day -day lives. Reason number three is that they were at a technological disadvantage. From weapons to railroads to telegraphs to steamboats, the U.S. government had so many advantages from a technological standpoint over the natives. Now, while the native did have some guns to speak of and some people who knew how to use them, they relied on the white man to restock their ammunition and to repair the guns when things broke down. So now let's take a Paul Harvey look at the rest of the story 
as we wind down this episode in both the West and in the Southern Reconstruction in 1883. Let's look at the life of William Buffalo Bill Cody. Buffalo Bill, or William Frederick Cody, was born on February 26 in 1846 in Scott County, Iowa. He was in his lifetime an American buffalo hunter, a U.S. Army scout, a Pony Express rider, an Indian fighter, an actor, an impresio who dramatized the facts and flavor of the American West through fiction and drama. His colorful Wild West show came to be known as Buffalo Bill's Wild West and Congress of Rough Riders of the World. It evolved into an international institution and made him one of the world's first global celebrities. Cody's father, Isaac, moved his family from their farm near LeClaire, Iowa, on the Mississippi River, to Kansas, where he operated a trading post near the Kickapoo Indian Agency. At the time, Kansas was engulfed in a violent struggle between those who opposed slavery and those who supported it. While delivering an anti-slavery speech, Isaac was stabbed and ultimately succumbed to the wounds three years later in 1857. To support his family, Cody already had begun working at age nine for the Russell, Majors, and Waddell Freight Company, where he had made use of his skills as a horseman. In 1857, Cody came to be celebrated as the youngest Indian fighter on the Great Plains after he killed a Native American who helped attack the cattle drive on which Cody was working. On the same cattle drive, Cody met the young Wild Bill Hickok, who intervened on his side in a fight Cody was having with an older man. And although Cody's name does not appear in the official records of the Pony Express, there is significant evidence that he served two tours of duty as a rider. Cody was 14 years old when he began riding for the Pony Express in the spring of 1860. And while some of Cody's exploits as a rider were the creation of public agents, there is no doubt about the courage and the dedication he showed while in service of the Pony Express. Of particular note was a dramatic round-trip ride of some 300 miles in Wyoming between Red Butte Station and Pacific Springs Station on which Cody completed not only his own leg, but those of missing relief riders. This ended up being a sleepless odyssey of nearly 22 continuous hours of riding. On another legendary ride, Cody outran Sioux Warriors three crossing stations in Wyoming, only to find the station keeper dead and his horses stolen. He narrowly escaped to the next station, but after arriving there, he gathered and led a group of men against the Indians, surprising them at their camp and retaking the stolen horses. Cody's cunning was the centerpiece of another often recounted episode in which he was called upon to deliver a large sum of money, and fearing that he would be robbed, he hid the currency under his saddle blanket and stuffed paper in his Pony Express saddlebag. When he was indeed held up at gunpoint, he threw the saddlebag at the bandits and then made good on his escape, with all money intact. During the American Civil War, Cody first served as a Union scout in campaigns against the Kiowa and the Comanche, and later enlisted with the 7th Kansas Cavalry, which saw action in Missouri and Tennessee. After the war, he worked for the U.S. Army as a civilian scout and dispatch bearer out of Fort Ellsworth in Kansas. In 1867 and 1868, he hunted buffalo to feed construction crews on the Union Pacific Railroad. During this time, he is said to have slaughtered some 4,280 head of buffalo, and he soon became known as the champion buffalo killer of the Great Plains. 
Cody acquired a reputation not only for accurate marksmanship, but also for total recall of the vast terrain he had traversed. Also, his knowledge of Indian ways, his courage, and his endurance. He was in demand as a scout and guide, mostly for the U.S. 5th Cavalry, throughout much of the government's attempt to wipe out Indian resistance to the settlement of the land west of the Mississippi River. Cody, who frequently took dangerous assignments that others refused, was awarded the Medal of Honor for his heroic actions on April 26th as a scout for a contingent of the 3rd Cavalry that was pursuing Indians who had stolen Army horses near Fort McPherson in Nebraska. During his Army service, Cody's reputation continued to grow. In all, he is believed to have engaged in 16 Indian fights, including his much-publicized scalping on July 17th of 1876 of the Cheyenne Warrior Yellowhair in Sioux County, Nebraska, which was held as a response to the massacre of Custer's command at the Battle of Little Bighorn earlier in the year. Such exploits provided choice material not only for newspaper reporters, but also for dime novelists who transformed the hard-riding, fast-shooting Cody into Western folk hero. Recognizing the financial possibilities in Aaron in dramatizing the West, Cody was easily persuaded in 1872 to star in Buntline's drama, The Scouts of the Prairie. Though his acting was far from polished, he became a superb showman, and his audiences greeted him with overwhelming enthusiasm during his 45-year career as an entertainer. For many years, Cody performed during the winter and continued scouting for the Army in the summer or escorting honey hunting parties from the West. In the process, the line began to blur even further between the scout, William F. Cody, and the legend and entertainer of Buffalo Bill. Indeed, as early as his scalping of yellow hair in 1876, Cody had consciously worn his flamboyant theatrical clothes into battle, later donning the same outfit to recreate his attack on stage. In 1883, Cody, with the help of producer and partner Nate Salisbury, organized his own Wild West show, a spectacular outdoor entertainment with a cast of hundreds, featuring fancy shooting, hard-riding cowboys, and yelling Indians, along with recreations of a buffalo hunt, the capture of the Deadwood South Dakota stagecoach, and a Pony Express ride. In 1893, three million people attended the show, by this point known as Buffalo Bill's Wild West and Congress of Rough Riders of the World. By the end of the 19th century, Buffalo Bill was one of the most recognized persons in the world. He continued to perform in his Wild West show until 1916, although then at age 71 he had to often be helped onto his horse backstage. While Buffalo Bill's exhibition remained extremely popular in the United States and abroad, in the end, largely through poor investments, including his purchase of an unproductive gold mine, he lost the fortune he had made in show business. His last public appearance occurred just two months before his death. His show also included celebrities such as Sitting Bull and Annie Oakley. Arguably the most powerful and perhaps the most famous of all Native American chiefs, Sitting Bull, was born in 1831 in what is now called South Dakota. The son of an esteemed Sioux warrior named Returns Again, Sitting Bull looked up to his father and desired to follow in his footsteps, but at first didn't show a particular talent for warfare. At the age of 10, however, he killed his first buffalo. Four years later, he fought honorably in a battle against a rival clan. Much of Sitting Bull's life was shaped by the struggles against an expanding American nation, 
When Sitting Bull was young, he was chosen as the leader of the Strong Heart Society. And in June 1863, he took up arms against the United States for the first time. He fought American soldiers again the following year at the Battle of Kildare Mountain. In 1865, he led an attack on the newly built Fort Rice in what is now called North Dakota. His skills as a warrior and the respect he'd earned as a leader of his people led him to become chief of the Lakota Nation in 1868. Confrontation with American soldiers escalated in the mid-1870s after gold was discovered in the Black Hills, a sacred area to Native Americans that the American government has recognized as their land following the 1868 Fort Laramie Treaty. As white prospectors rushed into the Sioux lands, the American government tabled the treaty and declared war on any native tribes that prevented it from taking over the land. When Sitting Bull refused to abide by these new conditions, the stage was set for confrontation. Sitting Bull's defense of his own land was rooted both in the history of his culture and in the fate he believed awaited his people. At a Sundance ceremony on the Little Bighorn River, where a large community of Native Americans had established a village, Sitting Bull danced for 36 consecutive hours. He slashed his arms as a sign of sacrifice, and he deprived himself of drinking water. And at the end of the spiritual ceremony, he informed villagers that he had received a vision in which the American army was defeated. In June 1876, just a few days following, the chief led a successful battle against American forces in the Battle of the Rosebud. A week later, he was engaged in battle again, this time against General George Armstrong Custer in the now-famous battle at Little Bighorn. There, Sitting Bull led thousands of Sioux and Cyan warriors against Custer's force, wiping out the American general and his men. For the U.S. government, the defeat was an embarrassment and the army doubled down its efforts to wrest control of the territory away from the Native American tribes. To escape its wrath, Sitting Bull led his people into Canada, where they remained for four years. In 1881, Sitting Bull returned to the Dakota Territory, where he was held prisoner until 1883. In 1885, after befriending Annie Oakley, he joined Buffalo Bill Cody's Wild West Show. The pay was more than good at $50 a week to ride once around the arena. But Sitting Bull quickly grew tired of the performances and the life on the road. He was shocked by the amount of poverty he saw in the cities and coupled that with the hatred that was directed toward him by some of the show's audience members, Sitting Bull decided to return to his people, where he famously said, quote, I would rather die an Indian than to live a white man, end quote. Back home in a cabin on the Grand River not far from where he'd been born, Sitting Bull lived his life without compromise. He rejected Christianity and continued to honor his people's way of life. In 1889, Native Americans began to take up the ghost dance, a ceremony aimed at ridding the land of white people and restore the Native American way of life. Sitting Bull soon joined in. Fearing the powerful chief's influence on the movement, authorities directed a group of Lakota police officers to arrest Sitting Bull. On December 15, 1890, they entered his home. After they dragged Sitting Bull out of his cabin, a gunfight followed, and the chief was shot in the head and killed. He was laid to rest at Fort Yates in North Dakota. In 1953, his remains were moved to South Dakota, where they remain today. Annie Oakley was the stage name of Phoebe Ann Moses. 
She won numerous medals for her marksmanship, performed for royalty, and remains a legendary figure of the American West. She was born on August 13, 1860, to Jacob and Susan Wise Moses, Quakers who had migrated from Pennsylvania to a rented farm in Dark County, Ohio, a rural county on the Indiana border. Called Annie by her sister, she was the sixth of seven children born to Susan Moses. In 1866, her father died of pneumonia. Her mother, unable to support her children, sent Annie to live at the Dark County Infirmary, which was the county poorhouse when she was nine years old. When she was about 10, she agreed to become a servant of sorts, helping with a baby and household chores for another local farming family. However, the family was abusive, and Annie referred to them later only as the wolves. She stayed with them in near-slavery conditions for about two years before running away back to the Dark County Infirmary. She returned home to her mother not long after that. Her mother had remarried and had another child, but her husband had died, leaving her to fend for herself and her children alone again. Annie, who first shot a gun at a very young age before she was sent away, ended up supporting the family by hunting and trapping when she returned. It is said that she could shoot quail and pheasants in the head, keeping the edible portions of the bird entirely free of buckshot. She sold the game to locals in Greenville, Ohio, and to hotels and restaurants in the area, and built a reputation as an excellent shot. She claimed to have been so successful that she paid the mortgage on her family's farm. As a young woman, she met Francis Frank Butler while he performed his traveling marksman show in Cincinnati, Ohio. Part of Frank's act was accepting challenges from the local marksman to matches with bets being placed on both sides. A local hotel owner arranged a shooting match between Frank and Annie on Thanksgiving Day. Frank was surprised to learn his opponent was a 5-foot-tall 15-year-old girl who beat him after he missed on his 25th shot. They began a courtship and eventually married after this. There is disagreements over the date of their first meeting and their marriage, and they may have wed as early as 1876, but their only known marriage certificate is in Windsor, Canada, and is dated June 20, 1882. Various reasons have been given for the discrepancies, including the possibility that Frank was not yet legally divorced from his first wife when he and Annie wed. The Butlers began performing together in May 1882 when Frank's partner became ill. She took the stage name Annie Oakley, possibly after the Oakley neighborhood in Cincinnati where they lived. Frank immediately recognized that Annie had a bigger draw and began to showcase her as the main act, acting more as a manager than as a fellow performer. In 1884, the Sioux spiritual leader and medicine man, Sitting Bull, saw a show that Annie was in, in a theater in St. Paul, Minnesota, and he asked to see her after the show. Annie gave him a signed picture of herself, and Sitting Bull gave her the moccasins that he had worn at Little Bighorn. Annie also gave her the nickname, Little Sure Shot. Also in 1884, Annie and Frank met William Buffalo Bill Cody while performing with the circus in New Orleans. Frank and Cody negotiated for a three-day trial with the Buffalo Bill Wild West show in early 1885. Annie and Frank would go on to perform with the Buffalo Bill Wild West show for the next 16 seasons. Cody called Annie Little Miss, an apt nickname for the five-foot-tall markswoman, and had her perform early in the show to help audiences get used to the sound of gunfire. Her charisma and her skill with many firearms endeared audiences to her and to the show. At 90 feet, she could shoot a dime or cork out a bottle or even snuff out a candle flame. 
She could also shoot a playing card with the thin edge held facing her multiple times. The theater business began referring to free tickets, which had holes punched in them, as Annie Oakley's. In 1887, Buffalo Bill's Wild West show traveled to London as part of the American Exhibition, which coincided with Queen Victoria's Golden Jubilee. In early May, they gave several special performances for the royal family. During the performances for Queen Victoria on May 11th, the Queen rose and bowed deeply when the American flag came into the arena. It was the first time a British monarch had saluted the American flag, and the members of the show roared their approval. The show stayed in London until October, giving over 300 performances that helped Annie hone her showmanship. The London newspaper gave her very favorable press for her shooting skills and began to embellish her Western background. In May 1888, the Wild West show returned to the U.S. after stops in Birmingham and Manchester, England. Annie and Frank left the show for reasons that were quote-unquote too long to tell. That spring, they toured with various other shows and independently for the rest of the year. In December, she made her debut as an actress in a play called Deadwood Dick, but the play and the theater company were not successful. In the spring of 1889, they rejoined the Wild West show for a tour of Europe, beginning with an exposition universal in Paris, France from May to October. They toured southern France, Spain, Italy, Austria-Hungary, and Germany before returning to the States in the spring of 1890. Annie was a celebrity, reportedly earning more than any other employee in Buffalo Bill's Wild West show when the show returned to the U.S. in 1892. Annie and Frank bought a house in Nutley, New Jersey, which they lived in between tours that typically took them out of town about 130 times each season. In 1894, Buffalo Bill, 15 of his Indians, and Annie Oakley were filmed by Thomas Edison in his Black Maria studio in West Orange, New Jersey. Edison turned the films into Nickelodeons. The public could go to kinetoscope parlors and, for a nickel, see Annie shoot. Now you have an idea as to how the channel Nickelodeon got its name. On October 29, 1901, the show members were traveling north in North Carolina to the final performance of the season in Danville, Virginia. Because of a misunderstanding at the switching stations, the second train, the one Annie and Frank were on, ran head-on into a southbound train. Now, whether because of this accident or because it was just time, the 41-year-old sharpshooter had been touring continuously for nearly 20 years. She retired from Buffalo Bill's Wild West show. In retirement, Annie tried her hand at acting again, appearing in a play called The Western Girl in 1902. She also began giving shooting lessons at exclusive shooting clubs. In 1910, they attended a Wild West show known as The Two Bills Show at Madison Square Garden. Cody had merged his show with Pawnee Bill's Wild West show. Cody asked Annie to once again join his show, but Annie refused although she did tour some with another show until 1913 when she retired for good. She and Frank remained good friends with Buffalo Bill, and when Bill died on January 10, 1917, she wrote a glowing eulogy of the old showman. In 1912, Frank and Annie had begun building a house in Cambridge, Maryland, which is on Maryland's eastern shore. The roof of the house was designed so that Annie could step out onto it and shoot game off of the river. They spent the rest of their lives in that house, spending some of their time at resorts in North Carolina and Florida. Hunting and shooting remained important parts of their lives. And in 1922, Annie performed at a benefit show on Long Island, 
and was rumored to be making a comeback, but in the end, she did not. In November of that year, at the age of 62, she was involved in a car accident in Florida and fractured her hip and ankle. The brace she had to wear may have kept her from performing again, but it did not keep her from hunting and shooting. Over the next four years, her health began to decline, and she and Frank returned to her roots in Ohio. On November 3, 1926, she died of anemia at the age of 66. Frank mourned so deeply, he stopped eating and died 18 days later on November 21st. They are buried together at Brock Cemetery near Greenville, Ohio. To finish this episode, let's finish the story that we began with, the story of Joseph Rainey. Rainey's final two terms were racked by setbacks for African-American civil rights in South Carolina and the final blow that virtually ended federal reconstruction in the South. On the American Centennial on July 4, 1876, black militia celebrated by parading through a street in Hamburg, South Carolina, when a group of white men attempted to cross the street. The black soldiers refused to stop. Debate over the incident became bitter on the House floor during Rainey's final term in the 45th Congress. Rainey condemned the murders and exchanged coarse remarks with Democratic representatives who believed that the Hamburg Massacre, as it was called, resulted from poor government by black South Carolina leaders. Bolstered by renewed Democratic control in South Carolina, John Richardson defeated Rainey in the 1878 election for the 46th Congress by more than 8,000 votes. Joseph Rainey retired from the House on March 3, 1879. Upon his departure from Congress, Rainey was promised that Republicans would nominate him as Clerk of the House of Representatives. However, Democratic control over the 46th Congress precluded Rainey's selection as clerk. When Republicans gained control of Congress in 1881, Rainey spent time in Washington trying to secure the appointment, but he lost the nomination. In 1879, Rainey was appointed as a special agent of the U.S. Treasury Department in South Carolina, after being endorsed by 84 representatives, including future President James A. Garfield of Ohio, in which Rainey served two years. In 1881, he started a brokerage and banking business in Washington, but the firm collapsed five years later. For one year, he managed a coal mining operation and a wood yard before returning to Georgetown in ill health. Joseph and Susan Rainey opened a shop shortly before Joseph died of congestive fever on August 1, 1887. And there is maybe no story that encapsulates the ups and downs of the Reconstruction effort in the South better than that of Joseph Rainey. Join us for our next show as we look at the industrial boom and the concept of the self-made man during the Gilding of America. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Beyond the Walls. Find us on Twitter at Walls underscore Beyond. Search for us on Facebook and Instagram by entering Beyond the Walls. You can also contact us at beyondthewallspodcast at gmail.com. Look for our next episode on the third weekend of next month. Beyond the Walls podcast is a production of Mad Lab Studios.